The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're very privileged to have Michael Chung with us this morning preaching for Pastor Sam today. And he'll also be preaching in two weeks. Um, for a number of you, you don't need an introduction to Michael. Um, you have met him and his wife, Christina, and I found him to be warm and engaging, people who love the Lord and his gospel. And I would say one of the things that you get in spending time with them is this sense of God has taken them through a lot, but, is re but he has revealed so much of his grace through all that. So you really get that sense from them. <clears throat> now, Michael has most recently served at Indelible Grace Church in Castro Valley, and while the Lord is taking him and his family through a time of transition away from that ministry, we are so thankful and blessed um, that they have chosen to worship with us here at Wellspring. So please give a warm welcome to Michael as he comes up to deliver God's word for us this morning. Thank you, Thomas, for that introduction. As Thomas uh, shared, I am a pastor in transition, as they say. Um, it's been a really challenging time, and I really want to express appreciation to this congregation. Uh, my family and I came here, I think, maybe about six months ago, and in, in that time, we've been really warmly welcomed. We've shared meals with so many of you. We feel loved and cared for, so I really want to say thank you. And I also want to express appreciation for Pastor Sam, who has taken me out to lunch many times. 
and uh, who's given me counsel and uh, friendship. And so uh, I'm really grateful for him. And so I'm really glad and uh, honored to be invited to preach in his stead while he and Pastor Fuji are on their, um, their missions uh, vision trip. And so uh, we're going to go uh, into the sermon. And um, the, the sermon text comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, which many of you will recognize. It's a fairly famous and iconic story. It's where we meet David for the first time in the Bible as this young boy. And it's actually one of the uh, major turning points in the scriptures because it sets the course for the rest of the Old Testament story. And more than that, it it serves as this vital uh, backdrop and context for the life of Jesus because the New Testament tells us that you cannot know Jesus, you cannot know, know who he is, what he came to do, until you understand who David is. Because if you remember, one of Jesus' titles is that he is the son of David, which is another way to say he's another David. He's David returned to Israel. So let's look at our text. Um, At the beginning of our story, we see the prophet Samuel, and he's crying. And if you really want to understand the um, emotional tenor of this uh, passage, and in fact, of the entire Old Testament, you really have to understand why he's crying. Right? In verse 1, he's weeping. He's, he's deeply grieved. And the text tells us that it's because Saul is not the one that God has chosen to be king. So why is that important? It goes back to the fundamental promise of the Old Testament, which is that one day God send a king, a savior king who will come and rescue us and set this world to right. That is the hope of the Old Testament. And um, I want to flesh this idea out a a little bit with an illustration. Several years ago, I uh, watched a documentary called um, Waiting for Superman. Um, It was was sort of a minor hit in its day, Waiting for Superman. Um, It's a documentary about uh, education reform of all things, and uh, it focuses on this, uh, the story of this man named Jeffrey Canada, who's an educator. He's the founder of this um, unique charter school called the Harlem's Children's Zone. And the title of the film comes from this story that he tells at the beginning of the film, that as a child, Growing up in Harlem, you know, Harlem is kind of a tough neighborhood in New York City. He says his favorite activity, what he most loved to do, was to read comic books. And his favorite figure was Superman. He was mesmerized. He, he, he would constantly read about Superman because he had this really intense dream that one day Superman would come. He he was firmly convinced that Superman would arrive in Harlem. And he says the saddest day of his life was when his mother told him, honey, Superman ain't real. He burst into tears. He was devastated. And his mother thought that he was sad um, the way children are often sad when they find out about Santa Claus. 
But he says he was sad because that's the day when he realized that no one is strong enough, that no one is great enough to rescue this world. And he says that growing up in Harlem, he knew this world is a heartless, cold-blooded place, and no one is coming, and no one is coming. That's why the prophet Samuel is crying. He's crying in despair. Is anyone coming to rescue the people of God? And 1 Samuel 16 is a turning point because it is the good news that God is sending someone, that he has chosen a king, but as, a, as we will see in our text, he has chosen a king that defies all human expectations. He has chosen someone that no one could have possibly imagined. And therefore, what does that tell us about uh, the way that God is going to rescue this world? And I want to draw out two points from our text. Uh, here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at uh, the fact that God looks at the heart. That's his criteria. And then number two, we're going to see that David is actually a type of the one to come. There's another David. So first, God looks at the heart. And so in this story, uh, the prophet Samuel, he goes to the town of Bethlehem. And he is on a covert mission because he has been tasked to anoint another king. You have to remember that uh, King Saul is still very much the king and in power. And so to anoint a different king when the old king is still around is an act of rebellion. And so Samuel, understandably, is afraid for his life. You see that in verse 2. And so he, he goes to Bethlehem on this ruse, this uh, cover story that he is going to offer a sacrifice, and there's going to be a feast. And so he goes to the household of Jesse because God has told him one of his sons is going to be the king. And so Jesse lines up all of his sons, and it's one of those uh, iconic scenes in the Bible. And in verse 6, when Samuel sees the eldest son, Eliab, Samuel immediately thinks, this is the one. This is the one that God has chosen. Because Eliab is tall, he's strong and burly. He's like this man's man, you know? And Samuel's like, wow, this is a king. Because in the ancient world, height and strength were indispensable for leadership because the primary task of a king is to lead his men into battle. He was primarily a warrior, and so he had to be physically imposing, and Eliab had that in spades. But in response, God says what has to be one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. If you read the commentaries, they'll tell you that this verse is really the key verse. It's sort of the thesis verse of First and Second Samuel it's verse 7. Let me read it for you. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees 
not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the text says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What does that mean? And I think this is um, so profound that I want to spend some time unpacking this. And the first thing is that it tells us our criteria for evaluating people is just completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Because when we assess someone, we look at external appearances, right? We look at their height, we look at their beauty, we look at sort of all these outward markers of success. We look at their education, their income, um, the prestige of their job. That's how we judge people. But the text is showing us these things do not matter to God at all. What does God care about? He looks at the inner life. He looks at things like our integrity and our humility. That's what matters. And so what this story is telling us is that this whole world is just completely out of whack because we are just obsessed. We are obsessed with appearances and we are completely fooled by external things. And here I am tempted to go into so many statistics that bear this out. For example, the fact that income is correlated with height, which, if you think about it, is absurd, unless I suppose you're in the NBA. Or if you think about um, online dating, can I just go off on online dating for a moment? Um, I think online dating is, uh, is, can be a wonderful tool. I know many people have met each other in that way. But online dating also amplifies and exaggerates our tendency to look at superficial factors. So the fact that uh, even though we know, <laughs> we know that what is most important in a marriage partner is their character and their godliness. Right? Even though we know the most important thing is their thoughtfulness and, and altruism, because that is, let me tell you, that is what is, will ultimately matter 3 a.m. in the morning when the baby is crying, okay? Believe you me. And yet, when it actually comes to looking for a mate, we focus almost exclusively on external traits. How tall are they? How much money do they make? How attractive are they? And we use that to filter out so many quality people. Even though we know that so much of it is, and um, let me put this charitably, is marketing and spin. Uh, I remember a friend once showed me his um, online dating profile. And uh, as I was looking at it, I was struck at how it was just photos. It was literally a series of photos. And I remember as I was looking at it thinking, this doesn't even look like you, right? You, you don't even own a dog. <laughs> but this is the world we live in. We live in a profoundly lookist culture. And it goes even deeper than that. It's even more pervasive th than that because it goes down to the subconscious level. Uh, years ago, I uh, read a book and uh, I still remember 
the, the feeling of just being stunned at some of the conclusions. Um, the book is called Survival of the Prettiest by Nancy Etkoff. She uh, teaches at Harvard. It's a really well-researched book. And in the book, she gives you all of these examples and uh, experiments that demonstrate that appearances subtly yet very profoundly influence how we evaluate people. Let me just give you two of the experiments. Um, In one experiment, they gave 400 uh, elementary school teachers in Missouri these um, student profiles, right? So basically, it's like a folder, um, and it's a packet of information that contains grades, writing sample, teacher evaluation. And the thing is, they gave each teacher identical student profiles. It's the exact same thing. Everything is identical. The only difference is that there was an attached photo. And the attached photo, both boys and girls, would show either an attractive student or an unattractive student. And then the teachers who looked at the attractive student profile were much more likely to say that the student was intelligent and curious and showed a very good work ethic and all of these positive traits. Whereas the teachers who looked at the unattractive student profile, and remember, identical student, they just literally photocopied the exact same information, only the photos are different. The teachers who looked at the unattractive student were much more likely to say, this student lacks initiative, um, doesn't show focus in school, and rated the student lower in intelligence. There was another experiment. Uh, Researchers created a video of uh, someone committing a crime, uh, uh, a petty crime of shoplifting, except the videos were staged. They hired uh, actors, uh, men and women, uh, to play out the the scene. And some of the actors were attractive actors, and then some of them were unattractive. But otherwise, exactly the same setting, exactly the same action, and then they showed these videos to focus groups. And the focus groups that looked at the attractive shoplifter were much more likely to give that person the benefit of the doubt to imagine a sympathetic backstory that might explain why they would be driven to such desperate measures, and to advocate strongly for leniency in the court system. Whereas the focus groups that looked at the the video of the unattractive shoplifter were much more likely to say, this person is a criminal. This person needs to go to jail. There's no excuse for such behavior. So what is Nancy Etkoff saying? (laughs) Is she saying, if you're going to commit a crime, you better be good looking? No. She is saying the same thing the Bible is saying. She's saying, and the Bible is saying, that we are totally driven. We are just completely controlled by appearances. And what God is saying in our text is that you're looking at the wrong thing. You're paying attention to the wrong thing because what ultimately 
ultimately matters is not what is on the outside of a person, but what is inside. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is um, contending with the Pharisees, and um, he's arguing with them about the clean food laws because the Pharisees uh, claim that if you could just avoid defiling foods, you can be clean, you could be morally clean. And Jesus responds with this devastating critique in uh, verse 21. This is what he says, listen. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, and pride. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's putting it in a negative form. He's saying what ultimately matters is the heart. What ultimately pleases God is the heart. And in, um, in English, when we say the word heart, we tend to be talking about emotions and, and feelings. But in the Bible, the heart is much more than that. It's the whole of your inner life. It's your thoughts. It's your motivations. It's what you desire. It's whatever you most value. That's your heart. And what our story is telling us is that the king that God is looking for is someone with a pure heart. Is someone who loves God with their whole heart. So let's go back to the story. Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he looks at all the sons of Jesse because God has told him one of his sons is, will be king. And in verse 7, it tells us that seven sons passed before Samuel. And the fact that there were seven sons at the feast, and that therefore David is actually the eighth son, is really significant. Because uh, the number seven in the Bible is a uh, the number of completion and fullness. You know, there's seven days in the week. And so the fact that uh, Jesse already had seven sons and that David then is his eighth son shows you his place in the family, that he was a complete afterthought. So that when Samuel says, assemble all your sons for the feast, notice that Jesse doesn't even remember. He doesn't even think to invite David to the feast because, you see, David doesn't matter. He's completely inconsequential. And it actually sets up this um, rather comedic moment because Samuel looks at all of the sons, right? And, and God says to him, it's none of these. So that Samuel has to go back to Jesse and he asks him, are you sure, <laughs> right? Are you sure all your sons are here? And Jesse responds, well, technically there is another, but you can't possibly be talking about him. He's out tending the sheep. He's the youngest. And this word youngest um, is a really interesting word. The Hebrew word there is katan. Katan literally means smallest, as in size. It denotes status or significance. 
and it's a pejorative in the Hebrew, so that um, a better translation might be runt or shrimp. So that Jesse is asking, you want me to bring the runt of the family? Like, why? I don't want to waste your time. And Samuel says, bring him. So everyone has to wait. And when the prophet Samuel sees David, he's this beautiful boy. The text says that he's ruddy, which means red, which is um, a sign of youthful glow. And then God says, this is the one. This is the man after my own heart. Arise and anoint him, for he will rescue my people Israel. In uh, T.H. White's classic novel, The Once and Future King, it's the uh, story of uh, King Arthur and Camelot and uh, the Knights of the Round Table. And uh, actually, Disney made an animated film based on the book called um, The Sword and the Stone. It's fairly accurate to the first part of the book. And in the novel, you meet Arthur as this young lad. He's living in the castle, but he lives this very humble life. And the reason is because Arthur is the illegitimate son of the lord of the castle, um, Sir Ector. And Sir Ector has a true son, a legitimate heir, and his name is Kay. And so Kay is basically Arthur's um, older half-brother. And Kay is training to be a knight. And he looks the part. He's strong, he's like barrel-chested, full of pride. Whereas Arthur is this scrawny boy, thoughtful and sensitive, and he's training to be the uh, case squire, which is basically like an assistant to the knight. And there's a scene early in the book that reveals the character of these two brothers. One day, the brothers go hawking. Um, hawking is like a medieval sport where you go hunting with a, a trained hawk. And Kay, who is gruff, uh, mistreats the bird so that the hawk flies into the forest. And when they go to try to retrieve it, the hawk flies further and further into the forest. And Kay, who is impatient, he gives up, he curses the bird, and he says, forget it, and he walks away. But Arthur is quite distressed by this because he knows that the caretaker has poured years of his life into training this hawk. And so Arthur volunteers to go looking for the hawk. And so he goes deeper and deeper into the forest. And in medieval England, forests were dark and menacing places full of wild animals and dangers and strange happenings. And even though Arthur is frightened, he ends up spending the whole night in the forest, keeping watch. The next morning, he wakes up, and he realizes that he has been sleeping the whole night next to this hut. And in the hut, he finds this eccentric, rather crazy-looking wizard named Merlin. 
And Merlin has this um, magical ability of traveling through time. And he has come back from the future specifically to find Arthur, to train and mentor him. And under his tutelage and through a series of um, amazing events, Arthur finds himself in a church courtyard where he pulls out the sword from the stone and therefore becomes the rightful king of all England. And in this story, Teach White you know, is really brilliantly characterizing that first scene with the hawk. It seems innocuous, but it's really important because it shows you the character of young Arthur. It shows you his noble heart. Because Merlin explains that the reason why he's come back from the future is that he has seen all the wars, all the destruction of Europe. And he knows that the only hope for humanity is to find a righteous king. And he realizes that what is most important is not brute strength, but humility and sensitivity and a servant heart. And so he finds Arthur. Is this not the world we want to live in? I don't know if you remember, this was a while back now, but um, there was a movie called Shallow How. And Shallow How is about this um, obnoxious character played by uh, Jack Black. He uh, plays it, I think, really fittingly. And Hal, the character of Hal, will only date beautiful women. I, that is all he cares about. That's his only criteria. That's why he's shallow. But one day, he's given this special ability, right? He's given this power to be able to perceive someone's inner beauty so that who they are on the inside appears to him on the outside. And then one day, he meets a girl. She is this drop-dead, gorgeous girl. And of course, she's gorgeous because he can see her inner beauty. But in terms of her outward appearance, she's actually rather unattractive and overweight. But he doesn't know that. And so it sets up all of these comedic moments in the film where he like cannot believe his good luck. He can't believe his good fortunes Fortune with being with such a girl, um, played by Gwyneth Paltrow in the film. And no one else seems to appreciate his situation. No one else seems to like acknowledge his good fortune. And so he's constantly upset. He's constantly annoyed. He gets into fights with all of these people because they're not treating her as they should. And it's a really sweet and charming film with this happy ending. But what I really love is the whole premise of the film which is what if we lived in a world where what really matters is the heart? What if we lived in a world where character and kindness is what really counts? I want to close this point by um, reading to you a quote from David Brooks. David Brooks is one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book called The Road to Character. And uh, what happened is that he had become this um, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, which is really the pinnacle of success if you're a writer. 
But a few years into that job, he realized the emptiness and the hollowness of success. If you live a life devoid of character, if you neglect the inner virtues. And so I want to read you this quote. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk because it is an extended quote, and I know it can be a little bit tedious listening, but I, I want to ask you to listen because it's such a beautiful, lyrical quote. I, I love this quote. So please listen. Occasionally, you come across certain people who seem to possess an impressive inner cohesion. They are not leading fragmented scattershot lives. They have achieved inter inner integration. They are calm, settled, and rooted. They are not blown off course by storms. They don't crumble in adversity. Their minds are consistent and their hearts are dependable. Their virtues are not the blooming virtues you see, you see in smart college students. They are the ripening virtues you see in people who have learned from joy and pain. Sometimes you don't even notice these people because while they seem kind and cheerful, they are also reserved. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. Humility, restraint, reticence, temperance, respect, and soft self-discipline. They radiate a sort of moral joy. They answer softly when challenged harshly. They are silent when unfairly abused. They are dignified when others try to humiliate them. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest everyday spirit they would display if they were just getting the groceries. They are not thinking about what impressive work they are doing. They are not thinking about themselves at all. They just seem delighted by the flawed people around them. They make you feel funnier and smarter when you speak with them. They move through different social classes, not even aware, it seems, that they are doing so. After you've known them for a while, it occurs to you that you've never heard them boast. You've never seen them self-righteous or doggedly certain. They aren't dropping little hints of their own distinctiveness and accomplishments. And in the end, they have an inner security. They've achieved a certain depth, and they're connected to a deeper reality. I remember when I read this, it just filled me with such longing. Let me just add a, a quick um, postscript to this. Um, he wrote a sequel called uh, The Second Mountain. And then in the book, like I, as I was reading The Road to Character, I was telling my wife, Christina, I was like, oh, I feel like he's like almost a Christian <laughs> because he's a, he's a secular Jew. And then in his sequel, he basically said that in writing and researching the book, he converted to Christ. And when I read that, I like burst into tears. And I was telling Christina about this. It's a beautiful portrait of character. But let's go to the second point, David as a type. So, so far, we've done a sustained meditation on verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart. It is a vision for a meaningful life. 
It is a, it is a blueprint for how we should live. But I would like to approach this from a different angle, another direction. And I want to ask you this question. When you look at this verse, is this verse good news to us? That God is not satisfied by mere outward performance and behavior, but he can look right into your heart. He can see all of your secret thoughts and motivations and desires. Do we say to that, yay, hooray, that's what I want? No. If we are honest with ourselves, this is not good news. This is the most frightening terrifying news possible. It is a mortal threat because who can withstand such scrutiny? And it goes to the fundamental question. How do you read the Bible? Is the Bible basically about you and what you must do, or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? How do you read the Bible? Do you see yourself essentially in the story, you sort of identify with the hero, and it's about how you must live your life, which is basically a moralistic reading of Scripture. And the problem with that is that if you read the Bible in that way, it's going to crush you. It's going to pulverize you to dust because no one measures up. If you're honest with yourself, everyone falls short. So how do you read the Bible? I really love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a children's Bible. In the introduction, this is what she writes. Listen, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But... The Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. I want you to know this story, 1 Samuel 16, is ultimately about Jesus. In verse 12, God commands Samuel to anoint David. Now, in the Bible, um, to anoint, to be anointed is to be set apart for God, to be set apart for his work. And because kings were uh, servants of God, they were always, always anointed. So much so that one of the titles of the kings was the anointed one. And in Hebrew, the anointed one is the word Mishayach, which is where we get the word Messiah. And in Greek, it's the word Christos, which is where, which is where we get the word Christ. So that in the text, as Samuel is looking at the sons of Jesse, he was asking God, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? And it was not Eliab, it was not Abinadab, it was not Shammah, and ultimately, it's not even David. Because even though David is indeed a man after God's own 
heart. And we see that, especially in the Psalms, that David loves the Lord. He loves the Lord. As you will see when you read First and Second Samuel, David is deeply and tragically flawed so that it is not David. Then who is it? Centuries later, another child is born in Bethlehem. And like David, he was not allowed in, but he was kept outside with the sheep and the animals. And he didn't look like a king. So that when he stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate was sneering. He could not believe his eyes. And he said, are you really the king of the Jews? Isaiah 53 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then when he was anointed, he was not just anointed with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. So that at his baptism, it says that the Spirit came upon him. It rushed upon him. And ultimately, this Mishayach was not just forgotten by his father, but forsaken. So that on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know that David was a type of the one to come. That's why, Samuel, that's why God can say to Samuel, no more weeping, because I have chosen my king. He's David's son and David's Lord, my only begotten son, Jesus Christ. What is the point of this sermon? I hope that you come away resolved and convicted that character is more important than outward appearances. I hope you will say, character. <laughs> and godliness, and, and inner beauty, that's what really matters in this life. That is how I'm going to assess people. I hope you say that. I hope you say, I want to be a person of character. I want to cultivate the inner virtues in my life. I, I hope I've persuaded you of that. But I want you to know that that is only the secondary conclusion of our text. The primary conclusion, the main point of this story is to show you that you need a savior. That if God were to look upon your heart and judge you on the basis of that, you are lost. And therefore, that you need someone who gave up his beauty so that he could make you beautiful. You need a substitute you need someone to stand in your place so that on the basis of his beauty, on the basis of his righteousness, because he was cast out, you could be brought in. Because he was forsaken, you are embraced by the Father. And when you believe that, when that becomes vivid and clear to you, it will change your heart motivations and it will start the inner transformation that is the Christian life. That's the gospel. Let's pray.
Almighty God, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We give you thanks for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of absolute moral beauty, but he was rejected and despised, crucified on a Roman cross so that he could rescue this broken and lost world from sin and death. And we pray that as we believe in him and commit our lives to him and follow him, that we will live transformed lives, that we will live lives that radiate moral beauty, lives that value not what the world values, outward strength, physical attractiveness, but instead the inner virtues of Christ-like humility and love and truth. Oh, give us the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.